Listener Production. Life for Aaron Faso has been so far so good. His newly released autobiography is titled exactly that and makes Aaron the first Torres Strait Islander man to ever release a commercially published memoir. Aaron chose to write this memoir aged just 47 because the experience for so many of his friends and family has been a premature death. Life expectancy for First Nations men in Australia is just 55. Aaron is a film producer, director, screenwriter and actor who also, in his first career, played professional rugby for the Canterbury Bulldogs. You will likely recognise him from TV shows like The Straits or Black Comedy. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, I will be joined by Bron to bring you some recommendations for The Weekend with The Weekend List. We'll tell you what to watch, read, do, eat and listen to over the coming days. But first, here is my conversation with Aaron Faso about his triumphs and darkest days, what he's learned and what he wants the next generation of First Nations men to know. Aaron Faso, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. It's so lovely to meet you. No, thank you, Jamila. It's wonderful to uh, be here on the uh, podcast with you today. And uh, thank you so much for extending the invitation. Look, congratulations on your memoir, which we're going to talk a lot about today. It's called So Far, So Good. And the first thing that struck me before I even started reading was that this is the first memoir published commercially by a Torres Strait Islander person ever. Yeah, look, um, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Um, I, so. I, I almost found that unbelievable. For myself, I, I thought uh, that was quite surprising uh, yeah. given that there, there are a few authors out there and there's, there's also academics that are out there. So I was quite, yeah, blown away actually that uh, and surprised that uh, this was the first uh, commercially authored memoir of its kind uh, from a Torres Strait Islander. So, um, you know, given that you know, we are in 2023. Gosh, I'm a bit baffled by it all. Yeah. Well, regardless, it is an extraordinary achievement. And uh, I was reading earlier some of your comments about why you decided to write a memoir at what you thought you were a bit like, hold on, like I'm not at the end of my life yet. Like I'm not <laughs> reflecting on the whole thing. I'm halfway through. What made you want to write a memoir now? It was from the perspective that you know the, the challenges and the successes that I've that I've made that I've been through, um, and you know I just started you know thinking about all those mistakes that are that most you know a good good portion of those mistakes are all in the book, and the failures so to speak that it could um, you know assist you know young Torres Strait or just young people in general to overcome particular hurdles, challenges, setbacks, but also in, in, in particularly in the mental health space as well. Uh, oh. The dark moments that, that I've that I've been through, that I've experienced, that I've come through on through, through the other side, that it could in some way way or form assist and empower others in terms of my own journey and in giving truth and giving insight, it could uh, in one way kind of empower and liberate others. Yeah, what a what a wonderful reason to start writing. And of course, we know that um, life expectancy for First Nations Indigenous people in Australia is far lower than it is for the mainstream population, and um, that's something that you've you've spoken about as well. 
the catalyst was, you know, the passing of uh, my, you know, my decision to actually really commit because I was still kind of sitting on the fence and I was like, oh, you know, do I really want to spill my guts on my, my story <laughs> and my journey and my failures and, and a, lot of, a lot of things that I'm not actually really proud of um, but, I, but I'd experienced that I've gone down a particular uh, pathways that, you know, I had to, you know, get myself out of, so to speak. But it wasn't until, you know, uh, I found myself over the over that course of, of thinking about the commitment to commit to this project was about three years all up. And over that three years, uh, I'd also experienced a lot of loss, bearing a lot of, uh, in particular, a lot of... Um, close friends and relatives and, and males in particular yeah. that, that were under the age of 50. So, and it wasn't until my best mate passed away that I felt that, wow, like if, if, if I was, and, and you know, coming into that demographic, mid 40s, heading towards 50s, uh, that if I was to pass away now or soon, that what is the story or the legacy that I leave, leave for my children? And, and I guess for me that was also the catalyst that, one, we are dying at a, low, uh, at a higher rate at a, low, at a lower age in terms of the age, age demographic, uh, but two, what do I leave behind uh, to my kids? And that we've lost people in terms of grandfathers and so forth and grandmothers and we we know of their history or we learn through others right in terms of their life yeah but i wanted my children to hear it directly from myself and my my future descendants so to hear it straight from uh, pop's mouth so to speak i love that now everyone who is listening would likely know you from your acting and your sporting careers but i want to start at the beginning so tell me about you as a child i know you were raised from the age of six by your mum and your nan, how do you think that impacted you and shaped who you were? You know, unknowingly, you know, given that, you know, the two major role, male role models and uh, were, were taking it out of the equation, so to speak. So I think unknowingly I, I placed a lot of pressures on, upon myself. Um, yeah. And so I carried this heavy burden not to anyone kind of forcing that upon me. I think it, it's something that I just took took upon myself to be, you know, the man of the house, so to speak. When you oh. think about it, like six years old, really? <laughs> but um, yeah. I think I carried that through a good portion of my life and, um, you know, setting really kind of unrealistic realistic expectations for myself, not allowing myself to be a kid, but also the profound impact that observing two very strong women, you know, just get on with business, so to speak. Watching them, observing them, experiencing them raise, you know, ultimately, you know, three young men or three boys all the way, you know, from boys to men and, you know, who were able to kind of instill, you know, work ethic, uh, culture, the importance of service, putting um, others before yourself, uh, looking at the collective and just really just getting on with business without any complaints and, and coming to the table rather rather than with a complaints sheet. But, yeah, come with a complaint sheet but also a solution to the complaint sheet. So I think those women taught – because, you know, because you had two different generations. You, go, you, yeah. got, you had one old school generation that my grandmother who lived under the Act 
and a lot of the, you know, the real hardships of living under the Native Protection Act, conforming to restrictions of, of not allowed to go into certain er- or going into town at certain times and so forth. Pretty much is how the COVID is the best example in terms of the restrictions, particularly around COVID, in terms of yeah, how many hours we were allowed out of the house. Oh. All of those types of re- restrictions were similar to that of what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were living under the Native Protection Act. Then you've got you've got my, my my mother's generation that came out of that, which is post the '67 referendum. So you had two different styles, I guess, of leadership in the house. What was also formed was a deep sense of um, that respect for the matriarch as oh, well. Oh. And you grew up, I understand, on the Cape York Peninsula. You were part of a big Torres Strait Islander community. What are your earliest memories of understanding the clans of the Torres Strait Islander people, the history of your family and your culture? Do you have do you have a moment of realization of going, this is not the average experience of growing up of every person living in this country, that my family are part of you know, this this tradition and this people that goes back tens of thousands of years. Yeah, look, when I look back now in terms of like when I when I think about those times and when I think about those those elders, those men and the women, you wouldn't have thought we were living on the wrong side of poverty. You wouldn't have thought that we were poor. We wouldn't you wouldn't have thought that we had any sort of we're living under any kind of really kind of harsh restrictions. And, and so laws, that, you know, in regards to the, or that they came out of the uh, living under the Native Protector Act, and that there was this real kind of segregation at that time. You know, during the eighties, oh. I'm talking about the eighties, yeah, the late seventies, eighties, and 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 you know, in the nineties, we, we were, the country was actually coming out of yeah. that, but they walked and they held themselves with such um, regal, with a re- regal presence. You swear that you, there, there was this inner quiet sense of pride, inner quiet sense of confidence, and there was just gentleness in everything, in all actions, in terms of how they related to kids. Oh, look, we, we were chastised and we were we, we, we were we were growled and so forth that you know when we mucked oh. up, but there was just this this real kind of deep sense of connectedness and love, and because these people knew where they come from. They were speaking their language. They were so in tuned and so connected to their culture. So that therefore kind of was reiterated to, to, to us and taught, taught to not only my siblings, but also my cousins, my older cousins. And also that I think when I think back to them, every decision for the collective, for the family, whether it was the movement from Saibai to, to, to establish to where we now know as Bamigan Saisia, or that movement to, to Cairns, every decision that I felt that they were making at, at, at that time was also f- forward projection. They knew that the decision that they were making that was kind of four generations ahead. So the, the decisions that we make and the actions that we make now are going to impact uh, later generations. So I, I think it was so informed from a cultural le- level, but also from a practical level that, you know, the world is moving now and the Torres Straits is going to be impacted on Western society, whether we like it or not. 
So it's about, okay, how, how better do we equip ourselves and what are the decisions that we make now that are going to inform and be better for our children, improve their lives, offer better opportunities that, that, that they currently are experiencing, but also knowing that they're still immersed in cultural protocols, the language, and still being informed in terms of the social structure of clan, of Torres Strait society. Mm. My earlier, uh, I guess, memories of that is just, you know, remembering that there was always happiness, there was always, always joy and love, and that they were all, everything was done in kind of, a, it was done in a fest, festive mode where there was always song, dance, and you knew the men's circle was there, they were yarning about their stuff, you know, knew the women and that they were yarning about their things. But there was also, I felt like that there were a thousand kids, there's probably not, not that many, but it felt like there was a thousand kids, my relatives, my, you know, my, rel- my cousins, my older cousins, that we'd play Tiggy or hide and go seek until the sun went down. And that, um, that there was always a sense of kind of love, joy and happiness. Yeah, you got, yeah, 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 you got clipped if, uh, around the ear if, if you stepped out of, out of line. But that's what is my earlier recollections about those earlier uh, formative years of, of growing up around, around family, in community, back in, you know, when, whether it was back in Saisia, Bamiga, it was always um, a deep sense of connectedness, love um, and culture. So when you're quite a young man, you end up moving from Cairns to Sydney to pursue your rugby career. <laughs> What what kind of culture shock was that like for you? Ooh, man. Yeah. Culture shock. Damn, I didn't even know what I was getting myself yeah. into. <laughs> you know, as the saying goes, yeah, pal, I think you've bit up too much here. <laughs> do, you, do you remember, like, is there a moment that you can pin it to a memory where you go, I remember I was standing there doing this and I went, oh, wow, <laughs> where am I and what am I doing? I'm one of those. If it, when it comes to fight or flight, I'm going to oh. fight. You know, so I'm like the like a moth to a flame. You know what I mean? So there was one part of me that was kind of so excited about you know going to the big smoke and 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 you know I'm, I was never kind of one that was would walk away from a challenge, so to speak, or something that if it was unknown that intrigues me. I'm fascinated by the unknown. So, like, I will walk further towards the unknown or yeah. even 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 if I, I don't know anything about it, I'm not aware about it, but it excites me, scares me at the same time. Yeah, 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 give me more of that, give me more of that. By the time I got to Sydney, it was January, and these cats have been, you know, in pre-season since November. Yeah. I was oblivious to the whole regime. I was oblivious to – I didn't know what to expect. And once I got there – I found out really kind of rudely how far I, I, I was behind yeah. everybody and it, it was a, a huge surprise. It was a huge shock to the system culturally and also the, the size of Sydney was massive, yeah. like a suburb of like the Cairns fits in a suburb of Sydney. <laughs> like, so um, population-wise, you know, just seeing so many different ethnicities how fast the pace of Sydney was 
which one, in one sense, it, it, it kind of really excited me. But yeah, you got to keep up. You're not just an observer here now, pal. You're not just on holidays. This is the life that you will need to engage in if you want to get somewhere. So you have to participate. You're a participant now. That's a whole nother ball game now, player, because you're not here for holidays. This is not just an observatory exercise. This is something that you need to uh, really kind of engage in. And, and I had trouble with that, coupled with the lack of support, being so far away from home. See, I didn't think of these things. I was like, yep, I'm going to Sydney. That's it. That's all that yeah. matters. And I'm going to make it. Now, for those who are listening who haven't had a chance to read your memoir yet, how on earth do you transition a footy career into an acting career? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with luck. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with just being in the right place at the right time. But, like, what was the right place at the right time? Was the, was there some I, – I, clearly I don't know anything about the acting business either. Was there some TV executive who saw you playing and went, I don't think he'd be good at acting? Like, how does that happen? <laughs> well, I think by, by the time the acting opportunity came, uh, came along, I was so disillusioned by, by my football aspirations oh. – going from one club to another, ending up in the same spot. But to be quite honest and truthful, I, I guess the de- dedication just wasn't there. The yeah. commitment wasn't there. The discipline wasn't there, right? And, you know, coupled with having to worry about, you know, cash flow and also, you know, other responsibilities like, you know, you've got to feed a child now because, you know, you're a father, you're a husband. All these things happen in the space of, you know, a short, a short period of time, you know, 1920, I was already married, I had a son in play. So there were other, you know, responsibilities that I knew that, it, that I had to take care of and the cash flow and, and the family support was, uh, was missing in, 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 or was extremely challenging. Then at the same time, trying to cut grade and keep hold of a job at the same time. Trying to manage all that at the age of 20. Eight years later, acting presents itself. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of changes in those, you know, eight years. And there's been a lot of failures, a lot of setbacks. So by the time acting came along, I was back up in Bamiga because I felt like I really need to reconnect with community. I really need to go back and find myself because I felt over that discourse of eight years, that I perhaps gotten lost there somewhere along the way, and um, yeah, and you know you can only there's only so many setbacks and so many failures that that one can handle um, before you know you 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 really start kind of beating yourself up and going down another kind of dark place. So prior to that kind of um, I'm, I'm letting things get away in my headspace. I, th- I thought it might be a good good idea to to head back home and just kind of reimmerse myself and get back to basics, simplify everything. So whilst back up there, uh, SBS are, are making uh, a, a series in the Torres Straits. They're looking for actors, no experience needed. <laughs> All right, that's me, man. I'm in. No experience. So I decided to put my name down. I received an audition sheet for one of the one of the characters. So I threw a sickie uh, for the next day. I borrowed an un- uncle's dinghy uh, and I shot across to Thursday Island, which is about, you know, 30 nautical miles. So it's about 45 minutes dinghy trip. 
and I spent the night at a, at a cousin's place, did the audition, uh, nailed the audition, uh, and, and I did. I, I, it was one of the, but listen, I'm still green as, not knowing what to expect and knowing what, how, you know, in terms of anything about the film and television industry, but still having the confidence to say, hey, I nailed that, didn't I? <laughs> Lucky enough for me, I did nail it, and um, I was uh, given the role. It was a main role, and with no, and, and a lot of us at the time and that were part of that kind of family in the television series uh, were all kind of non-actors or well, had no acting experience, and I guess that's the series and that's the role and that's the opportunity that catapulted me into the industry. Before you know it, you know, I've signed up with an agent. I resign without no thought. There was no thought pattern in this or any real kind of planning. That's the trajectory into the industry, I guess. You talk with uh, incredible candor both here and and in the book about the nature of your successes, but also, and you've done this while we've been chatting, also the nature of the failures and the parts of life that have not been as glittering as the trajectory can look on paper, right, from the success of a move down to Sydney and playing football at the highest level and then moving into the television industry and, you know, acting in some incredible and, like, beloved Australian shows and then going into producing. Mm. But what did strike me, I think, in in reading your book was the candour with which you talk about uh, shame and and regret in a way that doesn't have any self-pity in it, I suppose. Tell me about the decision to be as honest as you could about the failings in your life as well as, you know, the glittering successful parts of your career. I mean, there's some really kind of horrid decisions that I've made and some things that I've done that I'm extremely not proud of. And I think that's my approach to life. I guess it's always been one from a position of truth um, or to find the truth or to find, you know, what, what are my wants? What do I actually need? Is this something that I'm doing for me or is it something that I'm just doing for accolades or validation? So what is the truth here? That's why when this was approached to me and this this opportunity to perhaps write, you know, my memoirs, and we didn't even know whether we was going to get picked up or not. You know, yeah. it was basically just it, it was writing writing up the pitching document, and and but also but getting myself, you know, I guess mentally and emotionally uh, ready to actually go there and tell my truth, warts and all, the the, the good, the bad. And the ugly. And it's really that simple, I think, but it was actually something that I had to really, really consider that, you know, if I was going to go go there, I had to go there. And, and that's the only way that, you know, I could actually, you know, make peace with anything or make peace with myself or actually look myself in the mirror at the end of the day um, was that if I was to engage in this exercise, that, that it had to be one from, you know, uncandid truth. But but also at the same time, taking the piss out of myself, mm. looking back and going, you idiot, what the hell did you think? No, you weren't thinking. Actually, you know, Arafasa, there's a lot, a lot of times that you don't put any thought into a lot of your decisions. <laughs> so I, I think, um, you know, for me it was, it was important that, you know, because this is something that my family had to, had to know that I was going to do. 
And, you know, my mother was dead against it initially. She goes, Aaron, haven't you, haven't you been through enough shit in your life already? Why do you want to go and ha- hang out your dirty laundry now for? And I said, look, I, I don't think it's about hanging out your dirty laundry, Mum. I think it's about being honest about your setbacks and your failures, but how you've actually triumphed over them. One only really fails if one actually gives up, you know? And I, and I think if anything gets any, anything out of my book, it's the attribute to persevere. It's, it's the attribute to accept your failures. I find that as black fellas, we don't have the opportunity to fail. Yeah. We aren't allowed to fail. In society, we've come from a position of deficit, right? So that's why sometimes our kids are so terrified of trying, of trying and just having a go because it's the shame factor and the shame factor is something that's been conditioned, it's something that's been taught, but it stems from the fear of not wanting to fail because we've already told, we've been told and drummed into us for many generations that we're worthless. And you've just got to look at history. You've just got to look at on, on, on the acts, you know, the, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have come through. And now we're talking about voice, now we're talking about treaties, which is all fair and good. And it's quite timely. Do I think that there needs to be a constitutional reform? Absolutely. But you've also got to, you know, understand that where the mindset of, you know, uh, a people and as people are, because of the transgenerational conditioning that it, that has been po- imposed upon us for 250 years plus. For me, it was about breaking that. It was about okay, yes, you are allowed to fail. In I've I've learnt more about through about life, about how to navigate success, how to do a lot of things in, in regards to whether it's from a business production or just, you know, with relationships about it's been all, my learnings have been, all been through failure and, and the, the takeaways from that. I think uh, some of what's most compelling about your memoir is how um, candidly and I think really um, intelligently write about that intergenerational trauma and intergenerational abuse and what that how that impacts people's lives and your own experience of uh, domestic abuse as a child and then subsequently as a perpetrator. We know that domestic abuse is terrifyingly common in this country. What would you say to young men who are listening right now who need to recognise their own failures and start to rectify their own behaviour? How do they reset themselves and put themselves on a path to being able to be comfortable with who they are and look after the people they're around. Being honest and truthful and being candid about, you know, particular behaviours, you know, seeking assistance, seeking help, whether that through a cultural route, whether it be through a professional route, that these services or, or, or there, there is assistance out there and that I would uh, definitely encourage uh, young men, men in general, to seek those assistances and those services, services that those who are perhaps in, in an area of, you know, where, whether they're perpetrators of domestic violence or whatever other, in terms of their mental mental health space, uh, uh, that they're not in, in a good that space and how they find that courage and how they build that, that, that trust or create that trust, whether that's, that's through 
a first or second player um, or taking some, having someone or a mentor or, or, or a confidant to assist them through whatever they're grappling with, that how they do that is their business. But it's, it's about seeking the right help and seeking professional help and cultural help and assistance to overcome the challenges that they're experiencing. These challenges can be overcome. Violence against women is just deplorable. We're there to protect our women. Men and women are there to support one another, you know, especially in, in relationship, in a partnership. You know, strong relationships ultimately build strong families and, and strong families build strong communities. Aaron, thank you so much for that. And I know today is very much about telling your personal story and that's why you write a memoir, but I'm going to shamelessly finish with a outwardly political question. I want to ask you about, you know, it is 2023. We are moving into a year where we are going to be talking about a First Nations voice to parliament. I want to ask you about your thoughts and reflections on that and also about action on climate change because for Torres Strait Islander people, this is even more acute than it is for others in the world. And with every year we move forward, we continue to pollute this planet and dangerous climate change looks even more terrifying. From where you're sitting, what are your views on those two issues and how we should be tackling them this year? Ooh, okay. That's, that's, that's just nice. some little questions to finish, that's, you know, some light stuff. Jamila, I mean, thank you. <laughs> Gosh, look, my, my personal perspective on The Voice, I think uh, in relation to constitutional reform, uh, inclusion and, and, and enshrinement uh, with, you know, First Nations people within the constitution, I think it's a must. I think it's uh, well overdue. And I think in terms of what the voice will do, it'll be anything pertaining to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island affairs specifically, that there will be representatives, a collective of people who will advise parliament and ministers in around the administering of funds for those portfolios that directly affect the lives and impact their lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I think if there, if there is a specific board of advisories who, who basically advise all ministers when any issues pertaining to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, uh, namely closing the gap, if you've got a group of you know First Nations people advising directly to ad, uh ministers um, in relation to the improving matters around enclosing the gap, improving the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as a collective, I'm all for it. Very well said. Aaron, thank you so much for being our guest on The Weekend Briefing and congratulations on your memoir. For those of you who are listening, you can get a copy, and you should, of Aaron's memoir, So Far, So Good, at all the good bookstores. I reckon you can probably buy it at a bad bookstore too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You can also buy it online. (laughs) (laughs) You can also buy it online via Booktopia. It was written with Michelle Scott Tucker. Aaron, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much. That's it for my conversation with Aaron Faso. His memoir, So Far, So Good, written with Michelle Scott Tucker, is available now at all good bookstores. In that conversation, we touched 
just tangentially on family and domestic violence and sexual assault. If you were listening and you need help in any way, if it is urgent and you are in danger, please call the police on triple zero. If you would like some advice and someone to talk to, you can call the 24-hour National Sexual Assault Family and Domestic Violence Counselling Line 1800 RESPECT. They're on 1800 737 732. Don't go away because the weekend list is coming up. Bron will be jumping onto the hot seat. Stay with us. It is weekend list time. Bron is here. She's bringing the recommendations. What have you got for us? So this first one is season four of You on Netflix. It's starring Penn Badgley, who's probably most known for being Dan on Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl, right? Yes. <laughs> part one of season four was released last week with five episodes. Part two is coming out in March. I am hooked. It's very different to like a very different vibe to the last previous seasons. It's more like a whodunit murder mystery now that's set in England. It's got a pretty much entirely new cast, except for the lead actor, and he's thrown into this world of upper-class, high-rolling aristocrats in London, So, who are basically pretty much all awful. Um, some of them die, spoiler, which is not really a spoiler for this show. A lot of people uh, die in this. Um, but, yeah, I devoured it. Full of twists, turns, keeps you guessing the whole time, and I cannot wait for part two to drop in March. So, yeah, I'm kind of upset that they made it in two parts. But, you know, just give it to me now. I want it now. Do you really know what you want, Jonathan? Kate, of course I want you. But I can't have you. We all have something bad in us. Not this bad. Sweet, Jonathan. You have no idea, do you? I love that. Uh, Great recommendation. Oh, my gosh, I haven't thought about the original season of Gossip Girl seasons in a really long time. Anyway, you've taken me back, Ron. You've taken me back. Um, I feel so silly with this recommendation, but it's a really good one, everybody. I feel like there is a drink bottle cult happening at the moment and everybody I know particularly the women, but everybody I know is carrying around large drink bottles. And as someone who is professionally dehydrated, everyone on uh, this video call where we're recording is holding up a drink bottle. So I was right. Everyone, I have been professionally dehydrated my whole life and that has changed in the last few months thanks to the giant drink bottle. But, but the giant drink bottle does not fit in the cup holder in the car. And I can't tell you how much this minor irritation has been ruining my life. (laughs) Anyway. I have found a website, this is not sponsored, I paid for this myself, they are called Willy and Bear and they sell really cute coloured like cups to put in the cup holder that expand the cup holder capacity and since we're all addicted to our water bottles now and we take them everywhere with us because they bring us comfort in hard times, I think they deserve a holder of their very own. That is a great recommendation. I need that. <laughs> um, I feel so silly having said that, but it, honestly, it is a very good decision that I have made purchasing the expander. What else have you got, Bron? Redeem me. Redeem me, please. I don't know how much this is going to redeem, but I've got Full Swing on Netflix. It's a documentary series that came out this week. Um, it's by the same people who made Drive to Survive about F1 and Breakpoint about tennis. Um, this new one is about the world of golf, which is... Not really my vibe, to be honest, Um, but yeah, it's incredible how they make you care about something that I have literally zero interest in. I cannot tell you how much I do not like golf as a, like, something to watch for me. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's one of the more boring sports, I think we can all say. But yeah, it's 
kind of gets emotional at times. You see the rivalry between players and like the hunger each person has to be the very best in their sport, basically. So yeah, don't put don't be put off by the fact that it's a pretty much a golf documentary. You, if you think it's not up your alley, please just watch it. I feel like a lot of people will enjoy this one. The highs are really high and the lows are really low and live somewhere towards that top. You have a pretty phenomenal career. Our first couple of years together, he was winning left and right, but I do worry about the future. I want to add a disclaimer to all of the golfers who are listening that you should definitely address your hate mail to Bron specifically <laughs> because I totally didn't. I totally didn't diss you in your documentary. Good on you, golfers. Good on you. No offense to the to the golf fans. I'm very sorry, but I think you know. I don't Walk think I'm back. being. I think that's pretty fair to say. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely fit, but I don't want the hate mail. Uh, Folks, I want to give my final recommendation to an incredible debut album by a friend of mine, actually, a woman called Claire Tonti, who is also a podcaster and former teacher. In her late 30s, she has gone and become a pop star, rock star, musician. I don't know what I'm going to call it, but I'm very excited. Uh, She has released an album. It's called Matrescence, which is a word I had to learn how to pronounce. And it is really beautiful, acoustic sounding album. It is a very stripped back, almost folk-like at times, as well as really melodic hooks in there too. I went to the launch of the album on the weekend and was absolutely overcome with it. I've been listening to the record ever since. Um, Particularly those of you who are mothers, the music here is very much about a battle with identity that happens when, when you become a mother and it's about birth trauma and raising little kids and I don't know, I so often feel like there's there's not music for you after you turn 30. And for me, this was absolutely just that. Can I show you how to feel? That how is it for today's weekend list and for today's weekend briefing. It is also... <gasps> Big breath. It is also uh, Bron Doizak's last episode. She's calling time on the weekend briefing because she is going off to uh, produce Matt and Alex that she also does, an incredible podcast. Both of those boys have been guests on the weekend briefing. Uh, You don't hear from Bron very often other than during the weekend list, but, folks, I hear from her all the time. She is an incredible producer. Uh, The reason that these shows are any good and indeed how good they are is all about Bron and the work that she does behind the scenes. She is tireless and generous and incredibly good at what she does. Bron, thank you for everything. <laughs> thank you so much, Jamila. It's so lovely. It's been such a pleasure to work with you and I've loved working on the weekend briefing. Thank you so much. That's it from us, folks. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of The Weekend Briefing, you should head to the Listener app. You can download that and you can follow us there or you can subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a sneaky five stars and a lovely words of kindness while you're there. It'll absolutely make my day. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.